2: Keith has disappeared into the desert with a bow and arrow. Uh, something something about it, a vendetta he's pursuing? We don't know. In his place, though, we have special guest Emily Vanderwerf, our former AV Club co-worker, now critic at large at Vox.com. Emily, welcome back, and thank you for joining us again.
0: Hey, thank you so much. I am having a great time. Uh, we just got done discussing Groundhog Day, and now we're going to discuss another movie because that's the premise of the podcast. <laughs>
1: but but we're doing it a a full full week later we're doing this a full week later
0: yeah no i i really enjoy this show and i i'm really happy to be here and of course i really love uh talking to all of you that's why i had a job with you for so long so uh yeah this is great
2: as we were just talking about while well, uh, not recording, we we resisted guests for a long time because we recorded in person, uh, all of us in the same room. We felt it uh, made everything just work better. And then it became impossible to do that. And now we're suddenly wondering why we didn't do this a lot earlier, because it's a lot of fun. However, uh, jumping back into it, in our last episode, we talked about Groundhog Day, the Harold Ramis, Bill Murray comedy that gave entertainment the trope of the endlessly repeating day and the hapless schmuck caught up in it. That trope has since been repeated a handful of times in other stories, including the Netflix TV series Russian Doll, the horror movies Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You, the science fiction action movie Edge of Tomorrow, and many, many other movies and shows that have done minor variants on the idea. But one of the clearest followers to Groundhog Day is the new comedy movie Palm Springs, which debuted at Sundance earlier this year and was quickly snapped up by Hulu for a record $17.5 million and 69 cents. Nice.
1: Yeah, nice. Definitely nice.
2: The reason for the 69 cents is because the producers expressly wanted to beat the previous record for Sundance sale, which was a flat, change-free $17.5 for Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation in 2016.
1: Good investment.
2: <sighs> the gag worked. It got the sale a lot of free publicity, but it was also a reminder of who produced the film. The comedy trio Lonely Island, who started out crafting viral comedy videos on Saturday Night Live and branched out into music albums and movies like Popstar never stop, never stopping. Their humor has always been on the off-color side, and apparently that extends to the bargaining table. It certainly extends to Palm Springs, which starts with a young woman named Sarah, played by Kristen Milioti, enduring an uncomfortable evening as the black sheep at her sister's wedding reception. When she runs into a smirking slacker named Niles, played by Lonely Island's Andy Samberg, the evening takes a turn, and before long, they're stuck in a time loop together. If you haven't seen the film yet, this is a good time to go watch it before listening further because it is impossible to discuss this movie without spoiling things that are better experienced in the moment. Palm Springs couldn't exist without the broad comedy and sentimental romance of Groundhog Day, but it winds up making Groundhog Day feel pretty low-key and realistic by comparison. We'll get into how both movies handle life in an infinite time anomaly after this.
0: The second you fall asleep, it all just goes back to the start. I drove all the way back home to Austin, and I still woke up here. One time I smoked a bunch of crystal and made it all the way to Equatorial Guinea. It was a huge waste of time. Well, then, what's the point of living? We kind of have no choice but to live. No, I'm going to get out of this. Suit yourself. See you tomorrow.
1: <laughs> Now what do we do?
0: You just have to embrace the fact that nothing matters.
1: Do you sleep with people in here? Great question. I have,
0: but you know, it takes a lot of work. May I cut in? It's the first dance. And that's a deal breaker.
2: That didn't work? <laughs> All right. Usual question, y'all. Uh, what did you think of Palm Springs?
0: I I really liked this movie. I wouldn't say it's on the level of Groundhog Day, but also I, it hasn't been around for nearly 30 years for me to get that acquainted with it. I thought the decision to bring Sarah, the Kristen Milioti character, into the middle of the story was a really smart one. And it made me engage with the movie in a way that made me like it even more. I thought there were some really great visuals, certainly visual humor, but also some fairly pretty uses of Palm Springs, which is the desert around there is kind of a hard place to shoot sometimes. And I also, I felt very connected to Sarah. I haven't liked uh, romantic comedy heroine that much in quite a while. Um, I have more things to say about it, but I'd love to hear what the rest of you think.
3: Yeah, I mean, speaking of just images in this film, I think the one that sticks out most in my mind is the image of Sarah screaming at Niles underwater while swimming aggressively toward him after she discovers that she is in the time loop. It is maybe my favorite moment in the film. Um And it just speaks to... What a joy Kristen Miliati is in this movie playing and not a very joyful character, but we love our complex, difficult female characters on this podcast. And she is definitely one of those. So she was also a big part of what I really loved about this film. And I did love this film. I've, I've seen it twice and I feel I don't want to compare my, my love of Groundhog Day and my, my love of this film just because I have experienced them in very different contexts over, over the course of my life, but they are very similar films. But just the the texture of Palm Springs is very different because we have the two of them in the loop and because we encounter Andy Samberg's character after he's been in the loop for we don't really even know how long. Long enough to forget what he did before he got trapped in the loop, Um, although that could have been the mushrooms talking. But I just, as a variant on the time loop, I think it's really smart structurally to kind of have this person already in there so you get to do. All the sort of fun, like watching him be an expert in the time loop and know exactly what's going to happen and know how to manipulate it to his satisfaction. But you also get the satisfaction of her shock and her figuring it out. So it gets like right at the top of the movie, you get to kind of get those two parts of the time loop narrative crashed up against each other in a way that I found really satisfying. And then the way that the film develops from there and the way the relationship develops from there and the way Sarah's character develops from there, I think is just really impressive. And I think when we finally get to the revelation of what Sarah is waking up into every time she wakes up, And what that is sort of doing to her within this time loop, I think it's really kind of devastating and gives this movie a lot of emotional heft that I honestly don't get with Groundhog Day. And that's okay. But I feel like there's a lot more there there with Palm Springs and the relationship within it.
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, <Uh-oh>. um, <laughs> I thought this film was fine. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I I did see it a couple of times myself, and there's a lot of small things I appreciate about it. But it also made me think, like, how did Groundhog Day become a genre? Like, how did it become the subgenre? Was something a premise so specific. An idea so specific. How did it spin off into all of these different films, and especially with a film like Palm Springs, which takes such a huge bite out of it? And so, what we end up having to do is appreciate some very minor differences that that are pleasurable. I mean, obviously, it's not you know to have another character in that loop, to have him have the film open with him having been in that loop for an extremely long time. Yeah, all those things are novel. You know, and then there are specific moments that are resonant i do i love um the way he moves toward her across the dance Mm -hmm. uh, floor knowing how everyone's bodies are going to move i thought that was kind of cool but then i also think about like this is a Lonely Island movie. Am I finding it anywhere near as like inspired or funny or as as something like Popstar or? Back but it's not Brothers really a fair or... comparison
3: to make because they're producers, but they're not involved <laughs> with the writing at all.
1: That's true, but I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's fine. Again, it's I, I, You know, it, it's pretty good. I, I just wasn't quite as overwhelmed by it as others have been.
2: I mean, here's the thing. There are 10,000 romantic comedies out there about a fussy slash prissy lady who loves her job too much and she meets the perfect man, but circumstances stand between them and then they don't and they almost get together, but there's a misunderstanding uh, and then she mm-hmm. despairs, but then they get back together. There are 10,000 movies about a hard bitten cop who, uh, you know, circumstances turn against <laughs> him and he's forced to defend the streets on his own. I, you know, there's Fifty thousand movies about a dad living in peace and harmony with his wife and child and bad guys kill those people and he has to go on a roaring rampage of revenge i can deal with there being like six or seven time loop movie movies i am fine with this becoming a genre particularly i mean for palm springs one of the things i love about it is that it's so openly in conversation with groundhog day It's so openly taking the things that are familiar about Groundhog Day and acknowledging, like, okay, you know this bit, we don't need to waste time on it. The fact that Niles just Mm -hmm. says to Sarah, it's one of those time loop situations you may have heard about, like the fact that it's so... Offhanded, I love that in a movie that I know isn't taking itself particularly seriously. like I love it when the movie doesn't bother with ten minutes of but zombies don't exist and just goes straight to oh, it's like in the movies, there are zombies. The reason that you watch zombie movies is not for zombie denialists, it's for zombie for zombie <laughs> action and, and people yeah. dealing with zombies. Here, I just I want to get to the time loop part. I am delighted to not have a ton of like, we need to prove you're in a time loop. We need to explain time loops. The fact that this movie just uses Groundhog Day to shorthand itself so it can move along faster and have more twists and get it all done in an efficient 90 minutes. I am all on board for this.
3: What about the rest of the movie, though, Tasha? What did you like I, it? I
2: liked it a lot. Like, I wasn't over the moon, I guess, but I think I liked it a fair bit more than Scott. I think the performances are very winning. I think it's doing the right things. I like a movie that challenges me to keep up. Uh, just you know, because it moves along so so rapidly in terms of edits and developments and shifts. I like the emotional tenor of it. Uh, I like what it's doing with its actors and its characters. But I also just really like the idea that even more so than Groundhog Day, it embraces the fantasy of what it would be like to live with no consequences and just go completely wild with it. I love that montage of, screw it, let's do everything that there is to do. I feel like for a lot of us, that would be the reaction to this kind of like supernatural phenomenon eventually. And the fact that we fast forward there with a couple of like very large characters doing their very large comedic thing. I just, a whole lot about this movie works for me, but also just the iteration of here's what the time loop would be like if you had a partner that you cared about. Here's what this time loop would be like if there was somebody in it who hated you. I think those are both really solid iterations on the story that make this film different.
3: Setting it at a wedding and at the cusp of a marriage, like, puts the time loop conceit in conversation with the idea of marriage or long-term relationships and sort of the stigma of mundanity, you know, that comes with being in a long-term relationship. And obviously, like, at the point In the movie, where they, where we get that really fun montage of them just doing whatever they want in the time loop. They aren't in a relationship yet, but it feels like a really good encapsulation of the idea that, yeah, you could just kind of live a really quote unquote mundane life doing the same thing every day, but if you're with the right person, it makes it fun. And I think within something that is a romantic comedy at heart, I think that that's just a really neat point to make within this time loop conceit.
0: I actually, I was thinking about this in terms of, we were talking about how Groundhog Day is a mashup of the time loop with the asshole becomes a better man story. And this is, I think, a mashup with a similar variation on that, which is the complicated, difficult women who struggle to pull their lives together at a wedding weekend for someone they care about. (laughs) Like this is, you know, this is in conversation with bridesmaids and um, Leslie Hedlund's Mm -hmm. movie, Bachelorette. Rachel getting married. Yeah. Rachel getting married. All of these movies that are about societal expectations placed upon women that play out at weddings that then are filtered through a comedic lens. And like, that was brilliant and fascinating to me, the way that this movie mashes up that genre with the time loop genre. And I think, I mean, there's so many reasons the time loop is a potent idea, but I think it keeps coming back because people keep mashing it up with new genres or even new, very specific subgenres of comedy. And that works really well. And it does here for me.
3: And character types too. Like Andy Samberg is sort of a variation on the sort of post-millennial schlub character, you know, the... I guess Seth Rogen is sort of the archetype you you point to there, you know, which is a different sort of archetype than Bill Murray's character was sort of referencing.
1: I guess the Time Luke movie does serve actors very well too, comedic actors and, you know, they can do the alternate takes (laughs) that make the cutting room floor now can be included in the movie. You know, it's like if they're really skilled as Andy Samberg and Christian Milioti are here, it's a format that suits their talents quite well. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you all are convincing me a little bit of the film's <laughs> merits. I'm just trying to figure out why I wasn't as over the moon for it as I might have been. I almost felt like it didn't get to the point where I didn't get to the point where the film got at the end. And it's tied to this idea of two people getting to know each other really really well in this wedding weekend of having a kind of marriage within a wedding day in which um they've spent all this time getting to know each other and that before they attempt to get out of the loop there's a conversation about that about just like how i don't know bored or whatever they would be with each other or how much they know each other that's kind of the theme of the thing it didn't feel that lived in to me it didn't feel like there was this evolution in their relationship or evolution within themselves particularly with Sandberg that took place that would have um, really made the film resonate with me more.
3: Well, what's interesting about it is that she is very active in breaking the loop. It is very different from other variations on the time loop story because there is a concrete solution she just has to go learn quantum physics and i love that like that's what she does she actually like figures out what is literally you know scientifically happening here she uses all her time in the world rather than learning how to play piano she uses it to get herself out of this situation that is again really horrible for her like the revelation that she is waking up every morning in the bed of her sister's soon-to-be husband waking up at her lowest point every morning like that is really kind of gutting when you think about it you know like just having to relive your biggest mistake over and over and over again and that being the impetus to actually take direct action as a character arc i think it's something really special and unique within
0: this genre of time loop movies it's not exactly new to do a romantic comedy where the burden of action and activeness falls on <laughs> the woman and the burden of you know sensitive emotion feeling falls on the man, but like that's really the case here, and I still like when that inversion happens i ha- it hasn't entirely run out of gas for me yet. I do think the decision to like explain what was causing the loop was I don't know. That's what keeps this movie from greatness for me as much as I like the resolution and as much as I like her learning quantum physics. And I don't know another way out of that problem. (laughs) Like creating a cause of the loop. Wasn't my favorite thing in the world.
2: It's funny that you should say that about the inversion. I've been trying to put my finger on why I like this movie, given that the uptight woman that has to do all of the labor And the slacker dude who needs to learn to grow up and stop being a slacker. Like, that is one of my least favorite tropes. (laughs) I'm so tired of it. After
3: our Eurovision discussion, Tosh, I was like bracing for you to to just come after Uh, this movie uh, for for that. I mean,
2: a lot of my dislike of specifically Will Ferrell in Eurovision and, and his role in all of that just really comes down to it's almost always male comedians whose entire affect is kind of about... Like, not giving a damn and not putting in the effort. Like, well, Mike Myers is more about a uh, flop sweat and putting in too much effort. But, I, like, I don't like a lot of Bill Murray movies because he often has this kind of like apathetic, I only just barely bothered to show up. I don't like it in dramatic actors. Like, Bruce Willis has gotten to a place in his career where he just perpetually comes across as, I'm not, I'm not even going to bother. One of the things you can certainly say about Andy Sandberg is like, you can always see that he's trying, but he's not trying. Desperately hard. Like, he wants you to like him, but he's not going to die if you don't. And I like his comic persona a lot because he's not afraid to be goofy. He's not afraid to be sensitive. He's not afraid to look weak. He doesn't seem like he has a lot of anxiety as a comedian or as an actor. And I find that pretty comfortable here. Like, even when he's playing a trope, even when he's playing a character that's pretty familiar trope wise. Will Ferrell in Eurovision, again, to me, feels like he's either not trying hard enough or maybe the movie just isn't trying hard enough to give him something new to do. This movie maybe doesn't give an Andy Samberg something like magnificently new to do, but it knows how to use him in the role really, really well.
0: I guess I'd say I don't know how much... Inversion's kind of the wrong word. I did like that Sarah is not particularly uptight at the top. She doesn't like that she's trapped in a time loop, but I think a lot of people would have that reaction. And I would (laughs) hope a lot of people would have that reaction, but she very quickly sort of gets into the fun of it. I think that this sells them really well as people who become friends before they become lovers. Uh, Obviously there are certain complications with that given (laughs) the movie's timeline, but I think it sells really well the degree to which they just get along and enjoy each other's company. And that goes a long way towards stepping over some of those tropes, like in Eurovision, which I was not a huge fan of either.
2: Well, as it happens, the whole idea of a man and a woman spending enough time together in a a non-romantic way that they get to like and respect each other is kind of a big part of Groundhog Day's take on romance, too. There's a lot that we can say about how these two movies speak to each other in terms of romantic plot lines, in terms of relationships between people. So maybe this is a good time to wind down and move in the direction of Connections. We'll be right back after this break to talk about the links between Groundhog Day and Palm Springs. What
1: the hell is going on with you?
2: What? You got a little out of hand.
1: You
0: think? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The pain is real. Why can't you understand that?
2: It doesn't matter. Nothing matters, right? Those
0: are your words. No, pain matters. What we do to other people matters. Being a source of terror is not fun, Okay. Is not fulfilling. I know this from experience. It doesn't matter that everything resets and people don't remember. We remember. We have to deal with the things that we do. Oh my God, cry me a
2: river, Niles. You were never going to deal with him. I
0: actually did you a favor, so fuck you. No, Sarah, fuck you. I mean, out of nowhere, you just start acting like a child, which, by the way, is how you got stuck in this shit to begin with. Ow! Now it's
2: time for connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. We were just talking about the romantic connections between the two films. Uh, Scott, you want to lead us off with that one?
1: Yeah so I mean the big difference here between the two movies is that in Groundhog Day Bill Murray's character Phil is the only person who is stuck in a time loop and in Palm Springs there are three people but uh, let's talk about the two relevant ones here not Niles and Sarah and it makes a big difference to the romance because there's a certain amount of fixed behavior that phil is adjusting to in groundhog day i mean everyone is behaving in ways that he has observed and has adjusted to including rita but in palm springs sarah and niles are experiencing this together they enter into the loop in different places we see her entering it right at the beginning and he's been in there for a while and so there's a bit of an imbalance there and then they have to kind of grow together and also apart from the fixed elements of the time loop and so that is what gives palm springs a certain amount of depth and also gives sarah more depth than rita ends up having because sarah is such a dynamic character and then she has that more complicated relationship with time as well because we are experiencing her discovery of this world and this is a place that niles knows well
2: i mean i feel like for me that whole the kind of the partnership of the, the partnership of she doesn't know the place well but she comes to know it well is an interesting aspect that maybe just gives palm springs a better balance in some ways than kind of the elements of the plot that work least for me in groundhog day i again rewatching watching it knowing so many of the beats of groundhog day i'm always sort of surprised how quickly phil turns to rita as the person that he needs to explain all of this to like he doesn't know her he demonstrably has spent virtually no time talking to her but as soon as something weird happens like his first thought is to tell her all about it and we later kind of get the after the fact explanation that it's because when he first saw her he wanted to take her in his arms and I think he probably just wants her attention and maybe her comfort, but I don't know that the film executes that as well as it could. And even in the end, given that we saw him try to give her a, a perfect day and it left her really horrified by him saying, I love you. The fact that she embraces it on the, the final loop through him saying, I love you, with e- having, having spent even less time together, having had even fewer meaningful interactions, still kind of bugs me. For me, like Palm Springs does a much better job of establishing the time that they spend together as friends, the time that they spend together as romantic partners, the time that they spend together at odds with each other, and just kind of justifying how they come to the End together
3: Palm Springs is also able to engage with Niles's betrayal in a way that the partnership in Groundhog Day isn't able to. Like there's that scene where uh, Niles tells Sarah that actually he lied and he did hook up with her a bunch of times before she came into the loop. And that's like a breaking point for her. It's it's what causes her to head off on her own to some extent. And in Groundhog Day, Rita doesn't have any ability to know all the ways that Phil has manipulated her over and over and over again to his own ends. And like, yes, she ends up happy in the end, but that doesn't change the fact that he he used her over and over and over again in this time loop. And if she knew that, if she had the ability to know that or understand that the way that Sarah has the ability to understand what Niles did to her, would their relationship work out the way it did?
0: I want to just say I love Andy Sandberg. I love Kristen Miliati. Kristen Miliati, in particular, has been kind of ill served by film and television. Like she's too often, you know, stranded in like a perfect woman role, like in How I Met Your Mother, mm-hmm. or, you know, just sort of the object of desire or the good wife back at home or whatever, like in Fargo. But I guess I would say that I think she's really winning here. But For as much as I love those two, this movie is super straight, super uh, cis, just like Yes, there are LGBTQ characters on the margins of this film and yes, it makes sense for the central character pairing to be a straight one and of course because of the twist with Sarah's um future brother-in-law, you know, the wedding essentially needs to be one between between two heterosexuals, yet at the same time like it felt regressive in that sense. Not in a way where I was like actively taken out of the film, but when I was done I was like, "Oh, Yeah, that was a a super straight, super cis movie. And in that way that, you know, when you are a trans woman married to a cis woman, you notice more and more often as you watch romantic comedies.
2: It is true that it would have taken literally no effort to make J.K. Simmons character gay and would have given us like a meaningful character in this story who was. I will give the 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 film exactly like two points. Like I, I, I don't wanna overstate this as well no, but you should be satisfied with this. But I do think it's got just like the slightest flavor of being more open minded than certainly the 80s version of this comedy would be in the fact that we know Niles has slept with dudes at the wedding. And I mean, he's done it out of boredom and curiosity and a a need for something different in his life. But there's no shame in it. There's no embarrassment in it. It's like, you know, yeah, I've hooked up with like these 12 women and these two men or whatever, like there's just sort of a sense of you know, you live long enough and you become pansexual. Like, that's just how it should work. Uh, it's very casual in a way that I found a little surprising, a little refreshing.
0: Oh, sure, sure. And um, I think it is true that if you have been married for long enough, you eventually do just sort of become pansexual as mm-hmm. a result of that whole situation. So, but yeah, I think the movie's embrace of Niall's pansexuality is fun. I thought more could have happened with that. Not in the sense that, like, I wanted there to be a meaningful romantic triangle or anything like that, but just in the sense that it is still kind of treated as a throwaway, not gag, but a throwaway plot point in a way that doesn't feel germane to the character so much as it does germane to the idea of wanting to toss some queer representation into the middle of the story.
2: It also would have been very easy to throw a little bit of that into our, like, let's do anything and everything, a montage given how highly sexualized this movie is in in some other regards. Uh, that said, we've, we've talked a lot about romance. We should probably move on a little bit. Uh, Emily, you specifically wanted to talk about kind of the existentialism of these movies.
0: Yeah, we talked in our Groundhog Day discussion kind of about how that is a throwback to the small town movie, to the idea of this like idyllic small town that you could never quite get back to. And the movie certainly plays around with that idea in very subversive ways, but... At its core, you want to like live in Punxsutawney. Like that movie works because of that. This movie doesn't quite have that. I don't think that these characters want to spend eternity at this wedding. And yet I watched it and it sort of pointedly takes place on November 9th, which is the day after the 2016 election. It's not taking place in 2016, but like November 9th is hmm. a date with some you know symbolic significance in our timeline. I've been thinking about this movie as creating sort of a heaven out of purgatory. And I've been thinking about the time loop as being about that. Um, There's this C.S. Lewis story called The Great Divorce, which I'm going to summarize extremely briefly. But in essence, it suggests that hell and heaven are the same place. It's just a matter of how you use the tools there to create happiness or destruction. And I get that feeling from a lot of these time loop movies, this idea that like, it can feel like you're trapped in hell or trapped in purgatory, but you actually find yourself in heaven. And I think that's really pointed here because it is this idea of like this perfect connection, this perfect relationship being a thing that you can get lost in. But if they ever escape this day, like they don't know what's going to come next. And I think that is even more appropriate in terms of this movie is being made in a time and released in a time when we're not sure when we're going to get to leave our houses, when we're not sure if the planet is going to become irreparably harmed by, you know, the extreme amounts of warming that are happening. There are all of these existential threats hanging over our heads. And what I love about Palm Springs is it doesn't try to point to those too much, but it does say here's a bubble where none of that matters and where you can be happy and you can get along and have this wonderful relationship but you have to leave that bubble eventually or life has no meaning. I think it's a slightly subtle different reworking of Groundhog Day.
2: I just have to say I uh, the, the Great Divorce, you know, I grew up on CS Lewis's uh, children's okay. books, but it, like as an adult, The Great Divorce is probably the most meaningful religious thing I've I've ever read. The idea that heaven and hell are things you do to yourself. I do think that they're expressed in both of these movies very well without necessarily literalizing it as a religious uh, story. But so much of what's difficult to reconcile about religion, I think, is fixed in The Great Divorce, and is maybe fixed here just in terms of not just life being what you make of it, but like all existence, all of your personal development, all of your time. So I think it's interesting how both of these movies kind of explore the idea that pleasing yourself is harming yourself but not necessarily in a hugely harmful way just like a non-productive way over time i think these movies it's weird they're both very juvenile in a way they're very playful humor both of them kind of like rely on some relatively lowbrow gags but ultimately they're both kind of like sophisticated emotional tracts about being a grown up
1: uh, under this interpretation though is that linked to the, your disappointment emily about them actively breaking this loop you know rather than rather than using the tools i suppose to create you know a better space for themselves that they get out of it that way
0: i think there's a very 2020 quality to that idea ground Talk day suggests that we all can like be perfected we can all work on ourselves long enough that we can become better people I think Palm Springs suggests, and this is a very millennial answer to this question, that like we have to find a way to break out of the systems we become trapped in ourselves. And to Tasha's point about, you know, these movies having kind of a religious quality to them. I do hope that you know in 200 years, Andy Samberg's like, face is emblazoned on churches everywhere and like Palm <laughs> Springs becomes a key religious text in whatever follows this, this current era. But yeah, I do think for as much as I wish there wasn't an explanation of the time loop, I think the idea of having to do something to escape it is a potentially powerful one and consciously doing that thing to escape it. It just felt a little bit too much like trying to explain the rules of something like the island on lost where i was like mm-hmm. i get it i can make it up in my own head but like you don't actually need to tell me step by step
1: how it all works so Did- you're familiar with the show lost emily
0: <laughs> yeah uh, I've, uh- I- I've watched a few tv shows actually in my time incredible would you
2: recommend it overall
1: <laughs> i would i love it i love it so much yes um, let me ask you all this. Was there any disappointment that this film has a denouement? I mean, would it would have been OK to end it with a question mark of whether they get out of the loop or they don't?
3: I think I would have found that really frustrating just because there is such a concrete solution to breaking the time loop that I feel not revealing whether that solution worked would make the frustration that Emily is kind of speaking to even more pronounced, you know, and I think that the denouement is clever and sort of the misdirect. And he has a dog, which I liked too. But I, I also just have to quickly point out that Kristen Miliati apparently ha- originally had like a two minute monologue explaining the <laughs> quantum physics of the time loop that, that was uh, mercifully cut. We actually have a, a fun piece with her on Vulture where she kind of goes into what she Learned and memorized for that monologue and, and applies it to the movie, but I think that would have exacerbated uh, feelings of of dissatisfaction with the literal escape out of the loop.
0: I agree with that, but also completely disagree. <laughs> like, I I like the ending. I like how it works. I'm glad that I have that answer. You know, as far as it goes as an answer, but there was a part of me that was like. Any good relationship is to some degree an act of faith. And mm-hmm. like him having faith in her ability to get them out of this situation, to me, that's the close of the story. I don't need to know if they actually escaped. That makes it more conventionally satisfying. But I think it might not hang with me as long because there is that conventional satisfaction. And if I can turn into Cinema Sins for a moment, <laughs> it is directly stated that the goat disappeared. The goat is no longer trapped in the time bubble. But When J.K. Simmons' character (laughs) goes to the wedding and talks to Niles, it is implied that Niles has no memory of what's happened now. Niles is trapped in the time loop. This seems to be a direct uh, contradiction of two points, and I hope... Someone was fired for that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a third Simpsons
1: reference.
3: I also think we didn't get a satisfying explanation of how voicemail works in the time loop. It was apparently able to cross over. Uh, her voicemail to him was apparently lasted through multiple loops.
1: It's tough to get the consistency of these things right. But you do appreciate when they do. I mean, like a film like Groundhog Day really works hard, I think, to have a consistent... You know, logic to it and progression, and you know, the the passage of time is something that I think is very well drafted, which is part of what makes that movie so satisfying.
3: But is it though? Because there's a whole lot of disagreement in terms of how long Phil is is in that loop.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't know for sure, but it just, but I I don't know if there's a, a lot of you can't necessarily count the days. Though I know people have tried. There but are it, so
2: many features out there where people try to scientifically prove how many years he was in that loop, and I—that is so not how I experience cinema. I find it fascinating, but at the same time, just so like counter to the point, I guess.
1: But there's no like, there's nothing. There's no time in Groundhog Day where you're going, ah, oh, wait a minute, that's kind of a screw up there, you know. Like there's like it, it's pretty well thought through, I think.
2: There's no goat.
3: There's no disappearing go. Well, it doesn't engage with the specifics of the loop the way that Palm Springs does, for better or worse. You know, it's just sort of a magical what's-it that happens to Phil, and there very purposefully is no broader explanation for it. So that is maybe at heart the biggest contrast between these two films, is the desire to sort of explain the mechanics of the time loop
2: speaking of explaining the mechanics of the time loop, Genevieve, you wanted to talk about uh, single setting storytelling. And an awful lot of the mechanics in both of these movies are defined by the degree to which the protagonists can only get so far. Palm Springs explores that a little more in that uh, Niles has apparently made it quite far out of town uh, before falling asleep. But, you know, the mechanics are also slightly different. What do you think is interesting about single setting storytelling in these two films?
3: Well, first, in the name of, of accuracy, you know, and to tip my hat to the, the cinema sins <laughs> of the world, like, neither of these is strictly single setting. They they both venture out of their their little bubbles here and there, or in the case of Groundhog Day, start outside the, bo- the bubble and, and travel into it. We talked a lot in the first half on Groundhog Day about the small town setting and what it brings to the story and sort of how it plays into both the the themes and the morality of it. And we also have already kind of talked about the effect of setting Palm Springs at a wedding and how that contributes to sort of the emotional core. But what kind of struck me in... Thinking about these two settings, and again, I kind of alluded to this in the first half in Groundhog Day, is how they function as romantic settings. Because, as I said, like, small town Pennsylvania in February on Groundhog Day is not a setting that screams romance, but it sort of becomes romantic through the function of the story and the relationship And in Palm Springs, a wedding is sort of inherently a a romantic setting, albeit one that a lot of people bring emotional romantic baggage to that makes it not romantic. And I think that is something that that Palm Springs plays with and develops a lot as well. So I don't know, maybe this is sort of repetitive (laughs) of what we've already discussed, and maybe it would be more fruitful to talk about sort of the single setting as a comedic factor, But I guess what I thought about in this connection was more about the settings as a function of the film's romantic storylines.
2: I mean, at least from the comedic angle, it seems to me that one of the things about these movies and all Groundhog Day style movies really is in a way inviting you to take more notice of your surroundings and the possibility of your surroundings and how much everything in your surroundings is an opportunity, probably an opportunity lost. Because every one of these stories, and it goes on to Happy Death Day, it goes on to Russian Doll, like it goes on to Edge of Tomorrow, they all kind of do the, all right, so here's the first round through a lot of very specific idiosyncratic things happen. You know, in Groundhog Day, there's the guy on the landing that says you're going to see the groundhog. There's the pickup truck and the various vehicles all heading downtown to, to Groundhog Day. There's the woman who's always going to be in the diner. There's the... The homeless guy panning for change. There's Ned Ryerson and so forth and so on. The point is he experiences them all the first time. And then they're all still there waiting for him the second time and the third time and the fourth time. So he has to choose how he's going to react differently or if he's going to learn from his mistakes as he eventually does with not stepping into uh, <laughs> like the, the deep hole just off the curb full of ice water. So the settings become uh, like the hermeticness of the settings in particular Become these kind of opportunity cost things or opportunity, I don't know, opportunity opportunities. That's a weird way of putting it. Um, but instead of cost, just potential benefits where everything in your environment, no matter how small represents a choice not made or a choice taken one way or the other. And I think both of these films do a lot of of playing around with that idea, you know, in the same way that that neighbor's house with the family on vacation is always going to be there. Like the appeal of the pool is always going to be there. Sometimes they go to it, sometimes they don't. Like that's just sort of the understanding is everything in their environment is going to be the same unless they move it themselves. So it's just an endless series of comic setups of like things that they can push in order to get a reaction or things they can choose to not.
1: I mean for the time loop premise to work, you really do have to have these repetitions. And so the single setting and the kind of the rigor of that is so critical to the comedy working. I I did kind of appreciate how Palm Springs ventured out from that a little bit. I mean I like that we do take this adventure to visit J.K. Simmons out in the Burbs where he's living pretty happily with his uh, family and his kid who is watering <laughs> dog shit watering dog shit <laughs> right um but that's almost like a little break almost in the same way that the the little subplot with the homeless man and who is part of the loop of course in Groundhog Day but I did appreciate being able to kind of depart a little bit from you know the routine I think Palm Springs does a lot more of that but but ultimately for a movie like this to work you really just need to have have the same encounters over and over again, and and then try to find variations on it.
0: I think one thing that Groundhog Day does better than Palm Springs is let you get to know those side characters. I really in Palm Springs kept waiting to get to know Tala, the bride, um, Sarah's sister, better, and really we don't know a lot about her husband to be beyond like that he's a jerk who sleeps with Sarah on the night before his wedding, and like. Yeah, there are some interesting bits here and there, um, particularly as pertains to Niall's girlfriend, uh, Misty, played by the wonderful comedic actress Meredith Hagner. But it really felt like we could could have gotten more with Peter Gallagher. We could have gotten more with so many of these characters. But I guess you make that choice when you decide to do more of a rom-com story.
3: Also, Dale
2: Dickey's Darla, I could have done with, with more of her. Too. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I just, I pretty much, anytime you have Dale Dickey in the mix, you probably need more Dale Dickey than <laughs> you're actually providing.
3: Just before we we leave the single setting connection, this is sort of only tangentially related to the setting, but it is also a really strong connection between the films that that I just want to acknowledge, is that they all have the device of there being an aural signal of the loop beginning anew. Of course, in Groundhog Day, it's the the radio playing, I got you, babe. And in Palm Springs, both Niles and Sarah have their own sort of respective uh, wake up phrase that is Literally, uh, Missy saying, wake up to Nile, And in uh, Sarah's case, it's, it's Peter Gallagher in the background going, it's a great day for a wedding, <laughs> which I don't think there's a whole lot to unpack there. But I just think it's, uh, it's worth noting as a very sort of specific stylistic connection between these films.
2: I think of that as something that other time loop stories picked up off the top of my head. I can't remember what it is and happy death day to you, but Russian doll certainly mm-hmm. has one. Yeah. And it's, it's drilled into your memory by the end of that, that actually pretty short series I feel like with Edge of Tomorrow in particular, it goes so quickly into, you don't need to see the beginning of the loop. The point is what he does with it. So you just start catching him like later and later in the parts of the loop that change and the beginning of the loop ceases to matter. Whereas in both of these movies, the beginning of the loop is very, very important because the beginning of the loop is where they most feel the repetition and the lack of choice. And it's where they have the least choice, you know, no matter what they do. And that's certainly what drives Sarah's choices is no matter what she does, no matter what she tries, she's always going to keep waking up in that same bed, facing that same mistake. And that's why she needs to change things. With Phil, it just sort of seems like uh, an insult to injury, Mm-hmm. He, you know, he, he keeps trying wacky things and he keeps having to face Sonny and Share every morning.
0: I do think there's something really compelling about a place where there's a small subset of people and you get to know them so well that like, you know everything about them and you can learn every facet of their lives. And it's like, it is a really great metaphor for being in a family, for being in a group of really strong friends, even for being in a workplace that you work for a long time, like, say, a, a pop culture publication <laughs> <those> <laughs> in, in 2009 and 2014.
3: <laughs> just started every day by playing I Got You Babe in the AB Club offices. It was really weird. I don't uh, know. It, uh, was, it was a key thing.
2: <laughs> we kept trying to stop him, and it just it kept not working. Well, I look forward to him uh, coming back on the show and denying all of that. But we, of course, will uh, stand up strong for our our beliefs that he definitely made a start every day that way. Uh, Groundhog Day is currently streaming for subscribers on Netflix and Hoopla. It's rentable on every major DVD service, and it's available in Blu-ray and DVD editions. Palm Springs is currently streaming exclusively on Hulu. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Uh, Well, what has been good in the
3: film world for me lately has been Palm Springs and Groundhog Day, which are the only movies I have had a chance to watch between our last recording and this one. So I don't have a movie to talk about this time. So instead, I'm going to put on my my TV editor hat and talk about a TV series that has already come up a couple times during this discussion. And that is Russian Doll, the Netflix series, which stars co-creator Natasha Lyonne as a woman who keeps dying and waking up again during her thirty six birthday party. It came out at the beginning of 2019 and made a fairly large splash with both critics and awards bodies, so it's what I just kind of assume everyone has seen, but I'm increasingly realizing through discussions with friends and family that that isn't necessarily the case. Uh, so consider this my official declaration that you should watch Russian Doll. Just setting aside Leon's performance, which is really something special that I think is worth checking out all on its own, uh, what I like about the series' approach to the you know, what if Groundhog Day only, dot, 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 concede, is that it goes really big and existential with it, using it as a sort of sticky, even messy metaphor for healing and self-acceptance. It's ostensibly a comedy, and especially in the early going, it has some of that familiar time loop, what is going on, humor, albeit a pretty morbid strain thereof, given how often and inevitably uh, Leon's character Nadia dies and regenerates. But as the series progresses over eight half-hour episodes, and uh, it's worth noting, as Tasha did earlier, that it's an admirably lean series by Netflix standards, Uh, Mm. Russian Doll applies the conceit to some really complex and affecting emotional beats. And I think the finale is one of the smartest resolutions I've seen for this kind of story. Uh, So much so that I'm still confused and a little perturbed that there are apparently still plans to go through with a second season, uh, whenever the pandemic may allow that to happen. Uh, but I'll, I'm i going to try not to prejudge that, given that Leon and her co-creator Leslie Hedlund were able to spin something unique out of a very well-worn premise the first time. And there's no reason to believe they can't do it again. But who knows when we'll get to see that. So in the meantime, if you haven't watched Russian Doll, or even if you have and feel like you'd like to spend a little more time in the time loop zone, uh, check it out. I think you've Good all show. seen it, right?
2: I'm a yeah. fan.
1: Okay, i uh, yeah. love natasha Leon so yeah. that helps yeah. yeah her
2: performance is great she's also she's just a, a striking visual all on her own mm-hmm. with that huge cloud of red hair and that that series just takes such advantage of kind of the visual space created around like this relatively diminutive uh, woman with, with very bright white skin and very bright red hair. Uh, just the look of that show is kind of marvelous. The design of the bathroom that she ends up mm-hmm. in over and over is marvelous. The design of the party, uh, the whole story like uses small characters very well. And and again, sort of the single setting idea and the, the variance on a theme. I think are done very well. But mostly it's just, yeah, it's not as tight as a 90 minute movie. But for a TV series, it's very tight. And it really hits an interesting sweet spot that I feel like we could stand to see more of, of something that isn't movie length, isn't prestige TV length, that just is -hmm. is exactly as long as it needs to be to tell a very specific story.
3: Definitely. Were you all on board for the finale to what it did?
0: I dug it. I actually, I'm am looking forward to season two. Yeah. Um, I feel as though I don't know if this is what they're going to do, but I feel as though there's enough characters in that show's world that I want to know more about. That mm-hmm. like either putting them in a loop or doing something else with the ensemble is like a really smart way to move forward with that show. And I hope it's what they do, but who knows.
2: I really enjoyed the, I, I actually big upped these on a previous podcast, uh, the horror, horror quote unquote movies, Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. But the second one fainted at, we're gonna follow a different character this time and it was such a good iteration on the conceit and then the movie just completely wussed out on it I'd love to see Russian Doll do that with the second season like actually go all in on diving into a different character that we've already seen from the ensemble in the same depth.
0: Yes but Jessica Roth in Happy Death Day to You was Oscar nomination worthy Tasha let's not
2: forget <laughs> that I mean I suppose they couldn't resist maybe going for that second Oscar and and maybe maybe the possible win this time. <laughs> All right, Emily, what's been
3: good for you lately?
0: I actually wanted to shout out the TV series version of Lev Grossman's books, The Magicians. I'm just going to touch on this very briefly. That is a show that has a really interesting use of the time loop mechanic. I can't say much more without spoiling a big plot point, so I won't. But suffice to say, there is a really interesting use of the idea of a time loop within that series that I haven't seen anybody else quite make work in the same way. What I really wanted to talk about was the HBO show. It's a British series that is called I May Destroy You. Mm. It is from creator, writer, star Michaela Cole. It is a show about a woman essentially trying to rebuild her life after she is the, after she suffers a sexual assault. It is, I don't know how it strikes this tone of being both bleak and horrible, horrific, And yet also having this streak of absurdity, this streak of very dark humor to it in a way that feels fresh and bracing and new. And HBO has been airing two episodes every week on Sundays and Mondays. And it's one of the best TV shows of the year. And um, I mean, I I, I don't watch as much TV as I used to, uh, but that's because a lot of it is not always exposing me to, I think, new ways of telling stories on television. This is like Russian Doll. It is a show that... Feels like it has exactly as much space as it needs to tell this story, and it's it's really brilliant and really well done. And I hope people check it out.
3: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of it as well. I've watched all the the screeners available to me, and I think it's a a really special show for for all the reasons you lay out. Its mastery of its very specific tone, I think, chief among them, and just sort of the sense of place in in the world it's built with the main character Arabella and her mainly her two best friends and also sort of a romantic interest in, in Italy but sort of the the core group of three I think their dynamic is just so interesting and lively and where a lot of that sort of unexpected humor and tenderness comes from. So yeah, strong, strong endorsement of your endorsement.
0: (laughs) I also think it's really smart about a lot of shows that try to tell stories about what it is to exist as a woman in a world that constantly is trying to sort of size you up in terms of sexual desirability, in terms Mm -hmm. of what men think of you. It's really smart at telling a story about existing within those systems without having a character turn to you and say, so that's what rape culture is like, everybody. (laughs)
2: Well, let me ask you the both of you this: since you've seen it, when the description first came out, when I first got press releases for it, uh, I kind of had a uh, "not again" moment. I'm so over sexual assault as a a plot device, as a plot driver in particular. Where where does this fall on the handmade tale scale? Like, mm-hmm. how bad does it get, and how well does it get over that? Uh, I don't know desire to. Performatively use sexual assault as an excuse for story drama and angst?
0: I would say it's unflinching, but I also would say I never had the feeling it was exploitative or like it was telling this story to add dramatic stakes out of nowhere. You know, I certainly think that The Handmaid's Tale has issues in that regard. I'd never have had those thoughts watching I May Destroy You. It's certainly not. Always an easy show to watch. I think it toes the line without going over it.
3: Yeah, it's also really interested in the sort of gray areas of consent and sexuality. And sort of, I don't think it's every episode, but it's certainly like the first five or, or six episodes kind of each turns on a different incident of violated consent and just sort of the range of incidents that it explores that within it keeps the, the idea compelling without dwelling too much on any one trauma. And some of them aren't necessarily traumatic. And that is its own sort of interesting point to deal with. So it's a show about trauma, but it's not necessarily dwelling on specific incidents of trauma.
0: If I were someone who wrote TV reviews, I would probably write an exegesis <laughs> on who the I and the U are supposed to be in the series title, mm. because I think it's incredibly flexible. And that's one of the things I love about the show.
2: Well, I've heard nothing but good about it. I'm very, very curious at this point, especially with that ringing endorsement.
0: I would love to hear what Scott is into <laughs> right now.
1: Uh, uh, well, I'm going to shift over to, f- to film. <laughs> <laughs> what? Film? Never heard of it. <laughs> uh, so so um, now that we're entering, I think it's about, this will be a fifth month with uh, movie theaters shut down. It feels sometimes that movies are over uh, other than Scoob and Trolls 2 <laughs> a, a, and a bunch of prominent titles that are on Netflix and Hulu. Uh, but under the radar, I, it's been a quietly excellent year for movies if you know where to look. Uh, it's also a great time to support independent distributors and movie theaters through virtual cinemas, which are usually like 12 bucks. They split the proceeds between the distributor and the movie theater of your choice. Uh, you know, uh, During quarantine, I've championed uh, Baccaro, uh, which we did a bonus episode on. I did a bonus episode on with Keith, and I also did a Your Next Picture show on 14, uh, which is Dan Salit's beautiful sort of indie drama and i wanted to recommend a uh on this show an icelandic film called a white white day a white white day opens with two basically wordless sequences uh for the first one is this very quiet sort of haunting sequence where we follow a car that winds down an icy highway and then finally sort of nonchalantly almost just busts through a guardrail and disappears from view, uh, and then there's like a series of static shots of this, you know, ramshackle seaside home as multiple seasons pass. Um, you know, it was just to give us that sense of uh, a very interesting way to give us a sense of passing time between the car crash and, and when we meet our uh, main character, who is this aging police chief. Uh, we, and we discover the person in the car was his wife. And he becomes convinced that something has happened to her uh, related to another man uh, that he believes uh, she was having an affair with. Well, see, the film unfolds with the tension of a slow burn thriller, but it's also more plainly a film about grief and guilt, like sublimated grief and guilt, and just a, a complex range of emotions. And, uh, you know, it looks amazing. I mean, Iceland looks incredible on film, and, uh, and I think it's, it's a real gem. And, and it was, it was a, kind of a discovery at... Uh, TIFF last year by a couple of people who sort of ventured into the contemporary world cinema section. And uh, I think it's really worth checking out. You can currently watch it on Film Movement Plus. I, I ended up giving my virtual cinema dollars to an art house theater in Key West, Florida, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, you, ha- you you may have some other options uh, uh, to choose from because the way virtual cinema works is just like it would with a run with a normal indie theatrical run. So you get a few weeks at a, at certain places, and then it expands to other places. And so uh, this movie had virtually expanded. Uh, to sunny Key West, Florida. And uh, so uh, that's how I paid to, to see it. But uh, it's on filmmovementplus.com and um, it's called A White, White Day. Uh, what about you, Tasha?
2: Well, I've always had kind of a fraught relationship with animation, with American animation specifically, because like even as a kid, I wanted more serious animation. I wanted long-form Dramas. I wanted a level of adultness that I was not getting out of a medium that seemed specifically designed to talk down to me most of the time and to sell me stuff the rest of the time. So the Disney Renaissance was was pretty good to me. I felt like we were getting closer and closer to Disney, maybe acknowledging that animation could occasionally be for adults. And then the Emperor's New Groove came along. <laughs> And when it did, I hated it. <gasps> uh, it was it was just all of this like throwback Hilarious Looney comedy. Tunes. Stop it! <laughs> it was all this like throwback Looney Tunes goofery that was not mm-hmm. at all what I wanted out of animation. So uh, I work at Polygon, film and TV editor. Um, Patrana, who I work with, is doing this column on the animated oddities that came out of that time, the transition after the Disney Renaissance when everybody was kind of trying to find a new voice. Uh, big musicals at the box office were just not doing it for animation fans anymore. And you ended up with all of these like weird one-off experiments like the Iron Giant and Emperor's New Groove that were part of a transition into a, a newer, like lighter comedy way of addressing kind of like blockbuster animation. So she wrote this piece titled The Emperor's New Groove Came Out Exactly at the Wrong Time. And it's specifically about how it caught the exact edge of that transition from Disney Renaissance, uh, serious epic filmmaking to like goofy, lighthearted movies. And as a result, it just died at the box office. And then a generation of kids grew up with it and absolutely loved it. And so now it has the reputation that it enjoys today. And it it made me go back and revisit the film and rewatch the film. And of course, watching it with a completely different set of expectations, I really enjoyed it. But one of the things that her piece brought up was this movie I'd never heard of called The Sweatbox. So I am going to recommend a movie that you cannot see legally, but you can probably see relatively easily. I found it on YouTube. It's uh, It was never released. Disney owns the rights and there's probably no way they're ever going to release it. So it just bobs around on YouTube. Generally, somebody will put it up for a while and Disney will have it taken down and somebody else will put it up. So if you can't find it right now, wait a day and, and try again. <sighs> Here's the story behind the sweat box. The music for the Emperor's New Groove was composed by Sting. They brought him in for the same reason they brought in Elton John for The Lion King. You know, they they thought uh like a popular musician, somebody with a lot of uh flexible musical chops, but also a big reputation, would work really well. And he might have worked really well for the movie that they were making at the beginning of that process, which was going to be a a relatively serious Prince and the Pauper story set in an ink in time period and, and sphere, starring Owen Wilson. And they got years into development and, and deep into production. And then they showed a bunch of footage to the brass at Disney and they said, none of this is working for us. And the director eventually left because it was very clear that the given him a co-director who kept pushing it towards comedy it wasn't working out for him he left and the new director was basically given an ultimatum like you have two weeks to figure out what's wrong with this movie and fix it or we're just going to pull the plug so they completely rewrote it they ended up with something much much shorter and much quicker moving and among other things they went to sting and said you know all those songs you wrote we're not going to use any of them because the story is completely different could you write some new songs instead And he was going out on tour at the time, and he was kind of like, I I don't do this, but I guess I'm going to. So, as part of the contract that Sting had, his wife, Trudy Styler, was filming all of this for an eventual documentary about his work on the film. And she captures all of this as it happened, kind of close up and personal. It's one of those Lost in La Mancha style documentaries that starts out as being, you know, the the triumphant story of how everybody at Disney loves each other and we all work together in a collaborative environment. And then it turns into like the dead-eyed staring of a bunch of people who've had years of work yanked out from under them and don't know if they're going to have a job tomorrow. She actually captures on camera the moment where a producer has to call Sting up and say, we're not using all of these songs that you've spent this entire film composing. (laughs) It is, it's remarkable. Just like the access is remarkable. The the reveals are remarkable. You get to see footage from the version of the film that never happened. Uh, You get to see concept art. You get to see all of these people eagerly and excitedly working on a film that then never came to fruition at all. You get to see the people who are eventually excited about what they're pulling together instead you get to hear some of the lost songs, including Eartha Kitt's uh, character, Yzma, the, the villain, has a great villain song that we didn't get to hear in the film. Mm. So there's just, it's, it's like 86 minutes long. You're going to be watching a, a pretty bad transfer of it since it's a bootleg, but it's absolutely worth it if you're at all interested in Disney or how the sausage gets made stories, or how the train goes off the rails stories. <laughs> this, this film is just about unbeatable. So uh, the sweatbox, find it on YouTube. I'm so I'm
3: excited, excited to, to yeah, track that's... this down. Hearing you talk about it, I am now remembering hearing about this over over the years, but I never kind of remembered what it was called or, or how to to find it. So
0: I have wanted to see this for years, and I'm I'm grateful to hear that it's apparently on a site called. Was it, was it you?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's you, it's you it's too? spelled much like uh, the the you and I will destroy. I might destroy you. I may destroy you. Uh, oh, okay, All as, right. as opposed to just the letter U, which that's that's a kind oh, of a tyro mistake that everybody okay. makes is putting in U dash tube.
1: I wonder if it would be it would be a good idea to use some sort of a VPN to mask <laughs> the identity of your computer. Not uh, just
3: any VPN, but Express VPN. That's right. We're, we're grateful
1: for our sponsors for to allow us to sneak around the internet.
2: That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out August 4th and 11th. Scott, what is coming up next?
1: So the last time I visited a theater before COVID-19 was to see First Cow, uh, which was poised to be a mainstream breakthrough of sorts by Kelly Reichert, one of the best truly independent directors in America. Uh, Five months later, First Cow has reemerged on VOD, and we finally get to talk about this eccentric tale of a 19th century cook who teams up with a Chinese immigrant to sell delicious oily cakes to fur trappers in the Oregon Territory using milk stolen from a landowner's cow. Reichert and her chief collaborator, writer Jonathan Raymond, visited this historical terrain a decade earlier with Meek's Cutoff, their austere and beautiful film about settlers trying to survive a route through the Oregon Trail. As a two-week journey becomes more open-ended and the supplies start to dwindle, the settlers, led by Michelle Williams, start to wonder if their guide has led them astray. Both films are rich in period detail, and both deals with themes like capitalism, immigration, and masculinity that are foundational to America herself. If you want to play along at home to this pairing, First Cow is available on VOD through Amazon, Apple TV, and the usual sources. Meek's Cutoff is currently streaming on Hulu and Amazon Prime.
2: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Groundhog Day, Palm Springs, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may read or address your letter on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve?
3: I am the WDTV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter, sometimes, occasionally, at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Scott?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott Tobias. Um, and you can find my work in the New York Times, uh, The Ringer, um, the, the Guardian, uh, Vulture, and other fine uh, publications. Emily.
0: Well, you can't really find me on Twitter right now at emilyvdw, but hopefully by the time this is released, I have returned triumphantly (laughs) to twitter.com. You can also find my writing at vox.com, and I'm the co-creator of the audio fiction podcast Arden, which is releasing its second season every Monday, A-R-D-E-N. Tasha?
2: I am the film and TV editor at polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Our absent co-host is Keith Phipps. You can find him.
1: The you can find him in the the Ringer. Or you can find him on Mel Magazine. You can find him at TV Guide. Uh, you can find him at Vulture, and many many other fine publications. He's also uh, working on a uh, book about Nicholas Cage that will come out in the future. Which he doesn't. So which he doesn't and, mention
3: often enough. So good for you, Scott.
1: And and you can find him on Twitter at, at Phipps 3000 <laughs>
2: You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash show. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash show. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.